You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, who... With somebody who is a very prominent Navy SEAL, very exciting story to tell you and somebody that I've wanted to talk to for a long time just because he is uh, a, a supreme teacher on leadership. And it's something we focus a lot here on the podcast. We'll get to him in just a moment. But our normal reminders about following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Don't forget as well about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Uh, you do all your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. Great and easy way for you to help veterans all across America just by doing your normal Amazon shopping. Works as well on your smartphone. If you go to HazardGround.com, redirect you to the app, so it's really convenient and simple. And all your credit card information is saved as well. Make sure you download the Killcliff TV app. You guys know Killcliff. There are partners in this whole thing. And don't forget to go to killcliff.com and get their newest clean energy drink, Killer Cliff Sickle with clean CBD. If you're into CBD, it is a fantastic drink. I use all the non-CBD products from Killcliff. Their pre-workout, their post-workout. Just a great company. It's founded by a former Navy SEAL. Profits go to benefit the Navy SEAL Foundation. Uh, they are top-notch, so go to KillCliff.com to order. And don't forget to download the KillCliff TV app. That you can get all the Hazard Ground episodes on the KillCliff app as well. On to this week's episode with our guest, who, again, I'm very excited to talk to. He spent nearly 30 years in the SEAL teams. He is a retired Command Master Chief. He has nine deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world, served as a SEAL sniper. He's a Silver Star, Bronze Star, and Purple Heart recipient, and he's a professional leadership instructor with Echelon Front. He is Jason Gardner joining us here on the Hazard Round. Jason, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, excited to talk to you. What you guys have done with Echelon Front, one of the premier leadership organizations out there, I think is absolutely fantastic, and you guys can check them out at Echelon Front. Dot com, but we always start the story uh, with you personally and how and when you got in the Navy. Yeah, so my father was a Marine, and uh, I was about seven years old when I decided that that I was going to go in the military as well. And growing up on on Marine bases and around Marines, I, I was going to join the Marine Corps, and had my sights kind of focused on on recon. Well, when it came time for the enlistment process to go on um my my dad my dad's like don't don't join the marine corps <laughs> um and he, his reason for that is he knew i wanted to do something special but he's like if you go at, at the time you know there weren't raiders that and the marines didn't have a closed loop thing so it wasn't like you could go do this recon stay in recon forever and at, at the same time I was there, I was doing a martial art and uh, one of my instructors was a, was a SEAL in Vietnam. And so he said, you should consider the SEAL teams because you can go there and stay there. Uh, and, and I started to, you know, I really in, in, respected this instructor that I had. And then um, when I started to pull the strings, cause there wasn't a lot of media, there was only a couple books out on the SEAL teams on that. I'm like, Oh, this is what I want to do. You know, I'd grown up on the beach. I swam and played water polo. So the concept of being a, a maritime special warrior really resonated with me. So I, I joined straight out of high school. Uh, they didn't have, so it's, it's kind of tricky. And yeah, navigating say, they, they didn't the have seal contracts back then. You couldn't sign up to be a seal. There, well, there was, there was one called die fair, but when I went okay. to enlist, it was all full so uh, I just took the risk and, and took what they call as a source rating or, or an MOS. Mm -hmm. uh, on my ASVAB test, I qualified for a bunch of different ratings and, and at MEPS, which is, you know, like kind of your in-processing place if pe people sure. weren't, yeah. uh, 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 you know, familiar with MEPS. They were trying to steer me in a different direction, and, and the rating they were trying to steer me in was, was closed, and I wouldn't have been able to screen for the SEAL teams. 
So I, I chose Gunner's Mate because I knew that was a source rating for the SEALs, SEAL teams, and uh, that worked out for me. I, I did the SEAL screener in boot camp, passed it, and then uh, went to my A school, and then right after A school went to, went to BUDS, which is our selection course. So yeah. I – this is After when, we, like, you, you, you're 30 plus years, so we're talking, you know, late 80s. 87. Yeah, I was going to say. So there's, like, nothing going on in the world at that point in time, at least, you know, overtly nothing going on. Um, no, I mean, you've got Grenada yeah. was the last thing. Uh, you know, because we believed the movies, we, we thought that guys were doing stuff all the time. Right. It just didn't make the news and all that. Um and that obviously that wasn't the case so much, but uh, uh, yeah. So there wasn't there wasn't a lot going on then. I mean, was it was it in your mind at that point in time as a young kid? Like, on, you know, I know you say you started reading up on the seals, but were you somebody who was sitting there thinking, "I want to be in combat"? Like, this is why I'm signing up to do this, or you just did it because of the challenge, because it was cool, because it sort of you know fed some sort of you know romantic notion about being a warrior, so to speak. Man, I, I, all of the above. Okay. I, I definitely wanted to be in combat arms and thought that the SEAL teams would be my fastest ticket there. You know, you watch, you you sit around and you listen to folks tell stories <clears throat> and you watch movies and you wonder, what will I do at that moment of truth? I, I, I want to be at that point of friction. And aside from being in the military, the other the other draw that I had was going into the fire department. Um, And again, what am I going to do at that point of friction? And and I want to just lean into the, the, the danger, if you will. Um, But point of friction is a different, a better word, I think. Sure. It's certain, certain, certainly understandable. It's for, for regular civilians out there, athletes would understand this better. So it's like getting the call up to the major league. Sure. I can hit the ball in the minors, but how am I going to perform when I'm fully tested at the highest level sort of mentality. And, and that's, that's certainly understandable. So uh, for you, buds, I'm just always curious, was, was buds for you uh, one of those things where you were able to survive it because of your mental state or you were able to survive it because of your physical state? Uh, that's, that's a great question. You know, buds, basic underwater demolition seal training, which is our selection course is uh extremely difficult and it was extremely difficult and i would say it's it's uh 80 or 90 percent mental and 10 percent physical yes you have to be able to do the uh uh all the physical evolutions but it's it's so much more a mental game and time and time again what i'll tell you so i'm 18 years old when i get to buds i'm probably oh 140 Maybe 150 pounds. Oh, come on. Yeah. Really? Felt like, I felt like a little kid. And, and you I had a this little kid. Horrible, <laughs> yeah, I had this horrible impulse going on because there are these guys there that straight up look like action figures. Yeah. You know? And, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm in here with a bunch of men. And, and, and I was terrified, right? And then I would see these big loud guys start quitting on stuff. It's mm-hmm. like, wait a minute. We, we, you know, we just got a little bit cold and you're already. And so about eight weeks into buds, it becomes apparent that the physical aspect isn't, isn't all of it because you can see these, these just machines of human beings that could do pull-ups and run all day long, folding up under the pressure uh, for whatever reason, and, and, and as I, you know, I try to make sense of it, it, it takes a lot of mental fortitude to be that strong, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. you got to, sure. you know, force yourself in the weight room, you got to push the limits and all the time, and yet they're folding, and then you would see people that you didn't give a second glance just grinding it out. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, just in, it, it always in, it always marvels me. I love talking to, to seals about buds, just because of, of of the mental sort of gymnastics you have to do on, on a daily basis just to survive. I mean, clearly you're all having conversations. Whatever downtime you have, you're sitting there going, "Man, this sucks." You're looking at the guy, like you know, you, you're you're embracing the suck together. Um, and and I'm always curious 
was there a point where you said to somebody, I don't think I'm going to make it? Or was there a point where somebody said to you, I don't think I'm going to make it? And what's that discussion like? No, I, I never said, I don't think I'm going to make it because I never allowed myself to think that. Right. And if I, if I entertained those thoughts, I'd, I'd have just like, Hey, you know what? Here, here's how the thought process has gone. I don't think I'm going to make it. Hey, well, you know, at least in the job as a gunner's mate in the Navy, I'll be warm and, uh, you know, it'll be fair. It'll be fairly easy and I can get out after this four year hitch. No big deal. And then boom, you're done. Yep. Um, so I didn't allow myself to have it. Did other people say, I don't know. You can tell when folks are struggling and if there's somebody that's a good teammate, then you'll Pick them start up. to give them, you'll start to carry some weight for them. You'll start to give them some verbal support. If there's somebody that's a drain on the, on your boat crew, then you'll just keep your mouth shut and watch them go. It's incredible. I, 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 hence where you get the term, you know, the only easy day was yesterday, right? I mean, that's, that's buds in a nutshell. Uh, from what every SEAL has told me, and it, and it makes a ton of sense. I just always marvel at how you guys, the mental uh, acuity you have to have to power through when your body, every muscle and fiber and nerve in your body is saying, man, just quit, take a break. I mean, that's really the ultimate struggle. Yeah, I think so. And at some point, your brain just turns off and you just perform. It's like that you're you're beyond how much you can suffer and then you're just like, okay, this is what I have to deal with. Life is suffering. Go. Um, and then, then after, you know, that's essentially hell week. And then after that, you're operating on very little sleep, but now you actually have to perform and pass tests and do, do other things. Cause yeah. hell week's just a punishment. Right. Um, but you're, there's not really any performance that you have to do during during that hell week and and again that's that's only the fifth week of training of a fifth or sixth week of training and it's a six month long course right um all right i I don't want to fast forward too much so if we're skipping over something important let me know but again you know you finished buds by the late 80s i mean i mean desert storm is the next big conflict it wasn't really a naval conflict were you involved in that at all yeah so i was on my first deployment and i was on an uh and our de- deployments, there were two deployments you did at a SEAL team. You either did a foreign deployment, uh, and for West Coast SEAL teams, we would go to, to the Philippines mm-hmm. and then uh, do a six-month deployment there and train with all kinds of different, you know, the Koreans. We'd bounce, you know, train with the Filipinos and do different exercises around the Pacific Theater. And then uh, the other deployment you would do is is you'd be forward deployed with an amphibious readiness group, which is an ARG deployment, doing a Westpac. And uh, you would just go around with the ships wherever they went and do some exercises with the ships or whatever training integration you could do there. So we were three months into our uh, Westpac deployment on, an, on a ship, and uh, the Gulf War kind of – Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait which led to Desert Shield and the Desert Storm, and that turned into a 10-month deployment for us. And how that manifested itself is um, we did a couple of uh, tanker boardings, to uh, which which were the first real-world ops that anyone done in a long time, um, at least at the, at the regular numbered SEAL teams level. And then uh, we got ready to do several other operations where we were going to clear some islands just off the coast of Iraq uh, that had either AAA sites on them, so anti-aircraft stuff that was shooting our aircraft, or just a big Iraqi contingent of folks. And in every case, we did the planning, we did the rehearsal for those operations, and then the when we went to do the uh, recons to fly over, the Iraqis had either abandoned those positions or in the case of Falak Island, they surrendered to the aircraft flying over to do the recon. And, and so those didn't go. Um, do you get that first real taste of combat that you had talked about when you were an 18 year old kid signing up for this whole deal? No. Okay. So the, 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 uh, that went off without a hitch kind of uh, mentality happens and you're kind of sitting there disappointed. Is that fair to say? Uh, 
invigorated that on my first deployment, I got to participate in something, what we called real world, where right. it was you know, real men. Um, but no, it didn't scratch the edge as far as combat. Okay. I I assume between the Gulf War and 9-11, that itch doesn't get scratched either, correct? No, that's I, I was in Somalia <laughs> in 1995 okay. um, and in a a pretty good firefight that lasted uh, probably four minutes. And that's enough to figure out what you're going to do. So for everybody listening, Black Hawk Down was 93. What were you guys still doing yep. there in 95? So we didn't leave in, in uh, 93. And uh, in 95, the U.S. and the U.N. were pulling out of Somalia, or the U.S. was pulling out of our forces out of Somalia. So, we went ashore. Again, I was on another ARG deployment, which is uh, not deployed to the Philippines, but deployed on a ship. And uh, we were helping the U.S. No, actually, the U.N. was pulling out. So we were facilitating the U.N. Facilitating the UN withdrawal from um, Somalia, okay. which meant that they, you know, around the airfield there in Somalia, at Mogadishu, they had a big, they had a couple compounds and the whole airfield was secured and so they were abandoning that and then moving up to the newport and shipping all their stuff out out of the newport so the airport they abandoned first and then they pulled out of the newport i'm only familiar with the airport because that's where i was at Mm -hmm. so we went ashore with the marines and set up a position a perimeter with the ocean at our back along the airport and we were there to support the UN when they pulled out. And so we went in and set up our lines. And then the next morning at like eight in the morning or three in the morning, all the manned security positions left and they were replaced by tanks. And then at 6 a.m., all the tanks left. And basically now you had the U the the airport and a couple of UN compounds that had been manned the day before. Now they're gone. And so what happened a couple hours after sunset was people, you know, the locals figured out, Hey, there's nobody manning that, that guard station. And then they'd peek their heads over the walls and then realize there's nobody here. And they all were just jumping in there, grabbing everything they could from like, you know, food and water that folks had left behind a roofing material and all that. And then a while later, the, um, the clans were up mm-hmm. and realized this happened. And then we saw one situation where we watched a bunch of people and this was about 1500 yards away from, from where I was at across the airport and up on a hill where there was a Jeep that just pulled up with a big, I think 51 cow in the back of it. And uh, um, just started shooting into the crowd Wow! to clear everybody out of there so that they could control all those resources coming out of that base. And then um, then later on that afternoon, there was a big fight in earnest over the airfield. One one uh, um, clan kind of held a compound at the south end of the air, air, airfield. Another clan held the compound at the north end of the airfield. You know, and you, you can't control only half of an airfield. So the guys from up north moved down south and tried to take that. There was a big kind of firefight. And we were behind the guys um, that were coming down from the north as the angles played out. So there, we were shot at quite a bit, but we realized it wasn't at us. And... Uh, an hour later, they gave up on that. They they couldn't they couldn't secure that 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 area. And then what happened after that was we started to take fire from those compounds down there. Became clear that that clan had decided that we were the enemy, and so they had launched a couple uh, recoilless rifle big gun that were mounted on the back of trucks. They fired a couple of those off at us, and missed. By quite a bit, and then, uh, and then there was a little bit later where we saw a group of like seven come down, three with rocket propelled grenades, two with PKM, 
then um, a couple just with AKs and a PKM is a big belt fed machine gun. Yep. And uh, um, they moved down to a compound that was to the south of us. And they walked out to the front of that compound where there was the like where the gate guards for that compound would stand. And they were hanging around there. And then they started pointing at us. Um, we're like, huh. And then we saw them actually look at us. We saw who the guy who appeared to be the leader pointing at us and then telling his guys with the PKMs to get behind these sandbag positions and then turned around and looked at us again with through the sights of his rocket propelled grenade. And he was looking right at us because I'm, I'm looking at him through the scope of my sniper rifle. And at this point, we're having a discussion on whether or not we're going to shoot. And at this point, it's clear that they have hostile intent. We've been getting shot at all morning. They're preparing to shoot at us. So I let loose around from a 50 cal sniper rifle. Uh, this is my first time shooting at a person. And this rifle I had inherited from another sniper who got hurt during the deployment and I had to replace him. And I didn't have great dope on it. And this is a 500 plus yard shot. Uh, my shooting position is crap. My spotter is next to me because I'm rested over the sandbags and he's kind of next to me and I just wasn't paying attention because I had too much going through my mind. Well, when I fire that first round, the 50 cal sniper rifle has this giant muzzle break on the end of it and it ports the gases back. So the reduce it's a recoil reducer, right? And so all those gases from that, that muzzle break come right back and hit the spotter in the eyes, knocks the spotting scope down, you know, fills the sand with eyes. So I shoot and I missed. Um, And I'm like, hey, did I hit or miss? And the guy that's behind me, um, who's my leading petty officer, Monty Treesize, super squared away guy, he's like, you missed. And I'm like, well, where did I miss? And in, in the old sniper rifle, you had to pull the bolt out of the weapon. The brass is still in there. Knock the brass out, reload a new round, and rechamber it in the weapon. And and it was it's a big pain in the butt. If you didn't do it quick, the bolt could lock up, and there was all kinds of other issues. So uh, reload the weapon. The radio man grabs a spotting scope. He moves further down the uh, um, sandbag. So he's not going to be in the blowback from the back blast and he gets in position and I get back up on, on my rifle and I can see the guy with the rocket propelled grenade, the, the leader. Um, and he's kind of like looking around like, wow, that was close. So I just, what it came down to was I had a crappy shooting position and I was just hysterical on that first shot. Right. Mm-hmm. So I get, get a hold of my breathing I lock in, I get a real tight shooting position, and I start to load the trigger, and boom, I get that surprise break. And now I'm in the process of reloading it, and I'm shouting to the guy that's that's spotting for me. I'm like, hey, give, you know, give me a correction. And all I hear from him is like, oh, damn. <laughs> And I'm like, hey, give me, hey, where did I hit? And he goes, oh, my gosh. And I'm thinking he's saying that because I'm so far off. I'm thinking the next words out of his mouth are going to be like, hey, you're you're a half mile off. I have no idea what correction to do. And then so I hit him because he's not even hearing me in the shoulder. And I'm like, where did I hit? And he goes, oh, man, he is down that had to hurt and so that that 50 cal round I, I you know i was i was right on um knocked it took the guy out and so it's like okay it was that that was all me the guns on we're, we're good to go i start looking for another target and the all i can see so i can start to hear the cracking of the bullets over our heads is, is I can see this C-shaped sandbag position and just this huge plume of muzzle blast over the top of it. And I'm like, shoot. Well, I can't see the guy, but he's got to be right behind that muzzle blast. So I put my um, crosshairs, crosshairs mm-hmm. 
straight in the center of that muzzle blast and sent it. Reloaded, come back up, look down there, and now I can't see the muzzle blast anymore, but I can see the sandbag positions he's in, and there's like a divot in the top of the sandbags. The PKM spilt over the front, and off to the side of the sandbags, I can see the guy. So as the bullet went down there, um, and we're shooting the 50 cal, the Ralphus Mark 211, which is a multi-purpose explosive round, it had to have hit the, the, the PKM and then splattered because it just had torn him up. He was, his guts were everywhere. And so he's done. Um, I can see folks running up to grab him and drag him out. And then I can hear someone else yell from our fighting position, hey, every, everybody down. So I get my head down. And I can hear what sounds like a jet flying over our head. And it's a a rocket-propelled grenade, right? Got launched, and one of the other guys saw it get launched. He's like, hey, everybody, get down. It goes right, I mean, like a meter over the top of our position. And then right behind that, massive muzzle cracks. Boom, 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 boom. And everybody's sucking mud. And so at this point, I'm thinking, well, here's the thought process I had. I'm doing no good down here. So I popped back up with 50 cal and started looking for targets and had shown up. So this Jeep shown up with the, with the Russian 51 caliber heavy machine gun in the back. And all I can see is that gunner and he's just shooting and muzzle flash. And I'm like, oh, man. So I rushed a shot at him. I aimed at the gunner. I wound up hitting the sidewall of the Jeep right between the gunner's legs, which made the Jeep take off. So good. That problem's kind of solved because that was a little bit sketchy. Right. Uh, that that muzzle crack when a 50 cal goes by you is loud. It sounds like the, the rounds are hitting you. Um, and then... Uh, then the next thing that happened was they, they started executing the peel, which is where they were laying down fire so they could maneuver from where they were at to cover position and then break contact. Uh, I did a couple of shots shooting at runners. I didn't lead any of them enough. And then finally they were peeling behind this, this building that was now 600 yards away. My uh, my tree size, my LPO is like, hey, they're at 600 yards now. I did the adjustment to the dope. And then I watched them run behind this the building. So I just started holding my muzzle, my uh, crosshairs on the on the corner of that building. And a minute later, one of the RPG gunners that was still left alive, rocket propelled grenade guys, steps out and he literally steps into my crosshairs, and I'm resting. So I start loading the trigger. And the crosshairs are on his pelvis at this point. And then he takes a knee to have a stable shooting position to fire that rocket propelled grenade when I uh, let the round go. And then I wound up hitting him right in the stern. Um, And my spotter said that, like, you know, when you shoot steel with the Ralphus multipurpose round, you'll get a flash from the round actually exploding. And he's like, that round exploded when it hit his sternum. It blew up. And so that put him down. And then that that wound that firefight up for there, but that's what I wanted to know. What am I going to do at the point of friction? Am I just going to cower and shake, or am I going to have my training take over and uh, bring the fight back to the enemy? And so that was good. Yeah. <laughs> Rest of the day was sporadic shooting at different guys who thought it was just fun to harass us with shooting, but nothing nothing real intense like that first firefight. And then the next day, there was a guy that I had to shoot at. Um, was a thousand yard shot. Uh, there was a at least a twenty mile an hour wind blowing on the airfield that day, uh, and this guy had an AT four. Which how how why he had one of our yeah. or a NATO style weapon as opposed to an RPG is beyond me. But that's what he had. Where he was at, even though I was a thousand yards away from him, he was like 200 yards 
away from where some tracks were getting ready to move, some some amphibs, and they were worried that he was going to shoot that AT-4 at. And so they shot at him with their coaxes, and he ran away and hid and then came back. And so they're like, yeah, this guy, and there was a group of like five of them, um, are obviously up to no good. So I took a, I wound up taking a thousand yard shot at him in, uh, you know, a t- t- shoot. It was almost a 20 mile an hour full value crosswind. And at the time we didn't have computers or any of the stuff. And so a shot like that, there's probably two, three people in the world that can make a shot like that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one of them. I missed and hit his body. <laughs> I dialed in too much wind, and instead of hitting the guy with the AT4, I hit the guy with the RPG standing three feet to his right. There you go. Well, listen, it still counts as a hit. I mean, you know, there's, there's, you're not taking. Yeah, an L. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> not taking an L. What's the one thing after that experience? Um, was there anything that you felt different about yourself? I mean, was that was having that experience? Was is did you look at yourself differently as a seal, as a leader after that, or is it just sort of part of the experience, if you will? Yeah, it was part of the experience, but it also brought a lot of credibility with it um, because you know in the nineties there weren't a lot of guys with any combat experience, so it brought a credibility that I didn't have before that. And so, so that was good. Um, How much does that experience prepare you for what you're going to see post nine 11 in Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, it's like stepping your toe in the pool and then jumping all the way in. And literally that's it. I stuck my toe in the water, but, um, knowing what you're going to do in, situation is not the same as being in a firefight for 24 hours plus yeah or um you know uh, other situations like that even in in uh, iraq uh 2016 17 where we're out of there and, and now you have a very technologically savvy enemy who's flying uavs against you that are dropping 40 millimeter grenades so it, it, it was different, um, but it's, it's a good way to start. Um, there's a lot of, you know, in the military at that time, it had been a long time since Vietnam, and there were a lot of assumptions that we started to make about what we would do in combat um, that, that weren't true. Um, so there you have it. I mean, uh, what else? You know, when I have nightmares – about that incident, it wasn't wrapped around shooting people because I wasn't really upset at shooting people that were trying to kill me. And the, the incident in Somalia you're talking about, yeah, in okay. Somalia, they're they're a long ways off, right? You know, 500 yards off. It's not, it's it's uh um it's not it's not a factor. What was a factor was I would have these nightmares that that I was missing. And everybody was counting on me to get those hits, and I kept missing, and that just drove me nuts. But oh wow! Uh, so when you begin your your combat experience in uh, was it Afghanistan first or Iraq first? You went to Afghanistan. Well, after Somalia, yeah, 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 it would be Iraq next, slightly, um, because again, Iraq was two thousand five, and that was. Uh, um, you know, driving around and getting ID, getting mortared, getting rocketed, uh, and then um, not really any trigger time, but sitting out in downtown Ramadi in a sniper overwatch that you infilled as part of, like, you know, we go out with Marine patrols or Army patrols, and they clear a building as part of their patrol, and then we would just stay there. And so now we would be, uh, you know, eight of us out in the middle of Ramadi or Tamim just across the river for a whole 24-hour period, you know. with the, help, the closest help is like 45 minutes away, and that might as well be an eternity yeah. in Ramadi or um, Tamim at the time. So in, in just staying out there and doing these sniper overwatches, trying to catch guys, uh, planting IEDs 
were doing anything else nefarious. And at the time that was the, the big thing is, is IED and guys putting those out. Um, so that was good. Uh, and then uh, Afghanistan deployment 2009 after that was uh, my next combat deployment. And that was really, really intense. Why? That was straight up fighting. This is that that's my task unit up behind me on the uh, um, photo in the wall. And that was the most violent of all my combat deployments. Was it just because of the uh, nature of how often it happened or was it just the intensity of the fights themselves? Both. Okay. Every time we went outside the wire, we were going to get in a firefight. It, we did 23 missions and 21 of them. We got troops and we were troops in contact. We got into a firefight. One of those operations was a four day op. We were doing, you know, we were operating on, uh, instead of targeting individuals, we were doing more disruption, which is, which is a good strategy, I guess. And so that meant that a lot of times we weren't in an cycle of darkness. So, a typical model for a seal raid would be go out at midnight and then you're back by five, six in the morning. And we were going out and holding ground and holding ground with the intent to we're there because we want the Taliban to come fight us. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's basically just like a big patrol to contact situation. Although we would always go way behind enemy lines get a Taliban target and then stay there for a day, two days, three days, four days. And uh, um, one of the targets we did um, early in that deployment, we were attached to the, the, the Green Berets from third group and uh, it was a four day long firefight. We went into Marja, um, which in 2009, Marja had not been cleared by the Marines yet. It was completely controlled by the Taliban choppered into the middle of it and held four square blocks for four days. And this is where they were consolidating all the opium after they'd harvest it and actually making some of it shipped into Pakistan and distributed worldwide. But it was estimated on that operation. We took a hundred million dollars out of their war chest. Oh, nice. Um, capture <laughs> that many drugs, but it was just a slug fest. I mean, so at, at this point, I, I assume you guys had to take it some casualties on this deployment, right? Yeah, we uh, we had a couple guys get fragged by a rocket. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of our so a lot of it was splattering around us. So we're working with uh, Afghani's. We had an uh, a Afghani commando step on an IED, uh, um, get both of his legs and an arm blown off. Wow. Uh, one of my guys that was right behind him had a piece of his femur stuck in his face. Oh, Jesus. Uh, and then that was horrible because as they were applying the tourniquets, the uh, plastic windlasses were failing, and so it took like four tourniquets to slow the bleeding down. That, that commando eventually didn't make it. Um, and then... Uh, and then several of the Green Berets were shot that we were working alongside. And we also, uh, towards the end of our deployment, had one of the, the, the team guys with us at a turnover operation step on a mine, and he lost both of his legs. I, I ask this because I guess at some point, you know, I mean, the 18-year-old kid at that point that you were that was romantic about combat and is, is long gone, and you're sort of a seasoned veteran at this point in time, but – is there a thought that ever enters your head uh, about your own mortality and how you're dealing with that? Or much like Bud's, you just block it out and never let that thought get into your mind? No, all the time I thought about it. Okay, so how do you how do you reconcile that gap between the job that you have to do and understanding that guys are going down like flies here and I, I could be next? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it was a gravitational pull, pulling me towards the point of friction. And while I was terrified by it, there was no place that I would rather be. And so I, I would have these visions and it would never be, I can't say that, that I was actually ever scared on an operation. There was a couple times when I was really close to getting shot 
And I was, I, I had a mental conversation with myself. It's like, yeah, uh, you're not going to make it out of this. And this is what you get. You live by the sword. You're going to die by the sword. And then I just, but it was just like a conversation without emotion, just like that. And then, um, and then it's like, okay, what's the next thing do I need to do? There's an amazing presence in that moment. And, um, in, in moments like that where nothing else matters and none of this anxiety crap matters, that all happens back on Ford operating base. Yeah. I mean, I was the same way. Like I, I, the the term scared, I was more scared getting ready for the mission ahead of time because the anxiety of it and the thoughts that would run in my head. Uh, but you know, once I slammed that door shut on the Humvee and we started rolling, it, it never popped into my mind to be scared. You just get so laser focused on the task in front of you. Um, that, you know, you don't really have time to be scared in those moments. I was scared before. And there were times after when I got back from a, from a convoy or whatever, you know, through the streets of Baghdad, where afterwards I was like, Oh, holy shit. I should have just died on that. Uh, I don't know how I'm still standing here, you know, and you're almost in awe of what just happened. Um, and you, you know, that thought actually gets out of my head quicker because I'm like, if I start to, you know, sit there for a little while, I'm going to be scared. So I, I, I didn't spend much time there. I, uh, um, yeah, I would replay visions of I could see the folks going to do the notification for my wife. Wow. Or I I I would have these these visions of me in a wheelchair sitting outside of reaching through the pasture to to brush my horse's nose, but I can't ride her anymore. Um And then I, you know, and then I would just put those away somewhere and and keep getting after it. There was a, remember embedding in a Marine patrol in Ramadi in 2005 and, and uh, the, the, there was this place called the government center in downtown Ramadi. And it was, uh, um, you know, it was, it was like Fort Apache, the Bronx. It was getting shot at every day. It was downtown. The Marines didn't, they, they would go out there and they would live in this place for like a week or two weeks. And then they would ro- rotate back to the Ford operating base and you get in there. It's hot. It's miserable. Then um, we're lining up for the patrol. And, you know, the Marine Sergeant told me where I was going to be in the patrol. And so before you go out there, you're like this. T- and, and at the time, 2005, there's, there's a couple of really good snipers operating in Ramadi and they're whacking guys from there was one shot we know the guy shot from 700 yards because we found his firing position it was the only one he could have taken the shot and he got a marine captain in the head from 700 yards away so you're like it's sketchy patrolling through the the souk and everything downtown because you're wondering dang am i going to get hit so that that anxiety portion that, that you're talking about, like, I, I'm freaking nervous about it. I'm like, who oh boy. And the sergeant tells me where I'm going to get in patrol and he's lining everybody out. And then we get all in our patrol formation and we're stacked in real tight right before the gate opens. And then all of a sudden there's like this anxiety, this anxiety, and then vroom, it's gone. And you're not you anymore. You're not you but you're part of this bigger thing that's a Marine combat patrol. And that is something, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it right now because it's like, it's like they just dropped a giant dragon into downtown Ramadi and that thing is going to roll around. And that was, that was the sensation I, I felt on that patrol, but that's the best kind of story I can use to talk about where that anxiety comes. And then it goes away because man, you can hear the guards that are up in the towers shouting and they roll the doors open and guys run out because there's two Humvees that are going to block traffic on, on uh, route Michigan, I think is the route there. And then they go out that they do that. And then everybody does a dead sprint across route Michigan because you don't want to make yourself an easy target. And you're just going. 
it's uh it's it's cool but it's like you know in the moment there's no anxiety it's 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 leading up to and afterwards that it comes um so and this is just you know from my personal experience you know and we talk about this a lot on the podcast is because all of that anxiety it, it, it just because you're able to compartmentalize it doesn't mean it doesn't have a lasting effect and doesn't mean it actually went away so after doing that for the better part of 30 years, 20 of your 30 years at, at that anxiety level, um, where are you now with everything and, and sort of how are you dealing with everything that you went through? Because you can speak about these moments with such clarity. And, and again, I can relate to the same thing as I talk about I, the vision is right in front of me, right? Like I can re-see everything in front of me when I share stories about what I went through. And, you know, when you talk to therapists and everything about everything that, you know, you go through, all those memories are so vivid, you know, they're, they're right there to relive and touch and smell and see. So how are you at this point with everything that you went through? I'm really good. I'm really good. Um, when I came back from that 2009 deployment, about three weeks after me being home, my wife told me, she's like, Hey, you're not the same person that deployed. Um, and Please, you know, I was drinking real heavily. I, I had a wick that was like a millisecond and, and I would lose my temper. And she said, you know, you guys got psychi- psychologists there. Please start seeing one. And so I got a hold of our command psych and started seeing the psych. And I, I pretty much saw a psychologist um, on or off for the rest of my career. So from 2009 to 2019 decade. I, I would go and see the psych and it was a huge help. It was a huge help to me. I, I well, commend I, you for that. I, I commend you for doing it while you were still in uniform. I commend you for the courage it took to, to even because I would assume there was a part of you that feared for your career, that if they knew you were going to see a psych, they might pull you off the teams. They might put you in on a desk. Job. Like, I mean, I commend you for the courage to do that. I knew they wouldn't do that to me. Wow. Really? I knew they wouldn't do that to me. It was already discussions that we were having you know, about that. And so I was, I, I was like, okay with doing it. And, um, and, and I'm glad that I was because I think I helped a lot of other people, you know, like when I became a command master chief and an operations master chief at a SEAL team, I'd have to sign out on my door where I was at. And so when I went to go see the psych, I would sign out at the psych and go down and see them. And it was like, it's those, those meetings were not easy. So I'll tell you something else though. So I got on this and I started seeing the psych and then I started getting serious about my health. And there's a guy, Doc Parsley, he's out now in, 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 he's a doctor, but he, he was a SEAL back in the 90s, and we'd done a sister platoon together way back in early 90s, and I knew him real well. And then he got in a program in the Navy sent him to med school. And he came back as our West Coast diving medical officer. So for Naval Special Warfare Group 1, that's all the West Coast SEAL teams, he's the doctor, right? And he started looking at all these these health issues that guys were having, having around 2010 and 2009, where it was like, just didn't make any sense, right? A 25-year-old guy with the testosterone levels of an 80-year-old man doesn't make sense. And he was trying to figure it out. And what he found out was that all of our sleep was jacked up. And he was right. Everybody was taking, you know, drinking monsters all day drink coffee all day. And then at night they're going home and they're drinking three or four beers to get to sleep. And everyone's sleep was just a wreck. Right. And so he found, and, and at the time the ambient. And so what he found was that, Hey, these guys, if I can square their sleep away, I can fix a lot of these other health issues. So he came up with a, uh, a series of supplements to take, and, you know, it was stuff like vitamin D3 and calcium and magnesium and stuff that would help you get a good night's sleep. And I got disciplined about my sleep. You know, I started drinking, stopped drinking caffeine afternoon. Um, and it fixed a bunch of my health issues. And it really helped with some of the, the, the pre-depression that I was suffering from, too, because I was 
That's when your body does all of its repair. Sleep is really, really critically important to your overall health. Um, and then I got off the Ambien too, because when you take a sleep aid, yeah. pharmaceutical sleep aids don't give you good sleep. They just sedate you and they yeah. actually screw you over because you're not getting the sleep that you need. Right. Uh, Doc Parsley it got out and now he has his own, he has a sleep remedy, which I take every night. Uh, I'm not a paid endorser of his, but it, it's something that I do for my health and it's a huge help. Uh, and then Later on, after I retired, I, I quit drinking. And I quit drinking solely for the fact that I can't just have one beer. Mm-hmm. I can have, I can do two beers, but I just can't have one. Well, here's the thing. When I'm knocking back two beers with dinner, that wrecks my sleep architecture for that whole night. So I'd gotten so paranoid about having good sleep. I'm like, drinking's got to go. Right. And so, so I let go of drinking. Um, I haven't had a drink in three years. Haven't looked back. Yeah. Uh, and it's fixed my sleep. And so for my overall health that every day is a journey, you know, now I'm doing lots of explorations into more mindfulness, um, meditation, uh, Wim Hof is great. And uh, I I'm doing cold exposure and, uh, his, his breathing exercises are really, really helpful. Wow. What's the one thing in seeing the psych for all those years that was the toughest to overcome or like the, the biggest revelation that you needed to have? Yeah. It's like him getting me to realize that all my problems are me. It's oh. you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, when, when extreme ownership came out and, you know, 2015, I read that right away and that reinforced that, but the site's just like, Hey, this is, this is you. Your kids aren't bad. It's you. Your wife is, you, you just need to control how you're, you're not paying attention to what you're projecting out there. You know, pay attention to it. Pay attention to when that you've got like your resting bitch face where you just have no expression. You look like a homicidal maniac and that's what you're projecting out there. How about trying a smile? Just try forcing a smile and see how people react different to you. And then, you know, how your interactions are better. So initially, once he got me over, which takes a little while to lead breadcrumbs across a path to get people to realize that all your stuff isn't combat's fault or your job's fault or your parents' fault or anybody else's fault. It's all you. Yeah, uh, it's it's eye opening. You have my mind spinning. Uh, Maybe it is me after all these years. Uh, You know, my wife would be happy to hear that. Uh, But nonetheless. uh, So, I mean, here's the thing. If you just focus on. Control. I can't control anybody else. All I can control is how I react to it, right? And and Victor Frankel's and yes. there's a Victor Frankel quote where he's saying, "Man, search for meaning." Stimulus, mm-hmm. yeah. Around stimulus, there's a space, and in that space, you get to choose your response. And in your response is your path to to, to freedom, and it's so true. So anytime something happens, if you actually pay attention and it's so hard, but if you pay attention, you can get that space wider and wider to where you can choose a good constructive response. Uh, one more on the, on the mental health stuff here. Uh, if you were, if you saw a, a young seal, a young Marine, a young soldier, whatever it was, do you think you'd be able to spot somebody who was like you when they were younger and it's not like piss and vinegar stuff, but just somebody again who uh, doesn't realize that the problem is them and the stuff that they're dealing with, they need to go get help. I mean, can you sort of look at somebody else and see yourself in them, I guess, is a better way to phrase it? Oh, yeah. How? Yeah. And I've absolutely done that. I've, I've seen myself in other team guys and then um, reached out to them in a manner where it's like, Hey, I'm going through these things. So initially the first time I did it, I I went to a guy and I'm like, Hey man, your your temper is like out of control. And I had all the same issues that you, um, when I came back from my last combat deployment and, and, you know, I'm seeing the psych 
it's really helpful. Um, I want you to give them a call. Okay, that is not, that doesn't work that great. But an approach that I started trying later that was more effective was I'd see, you know, said individual that, that is displaying all these warning signs that they're going through what I went through. And then I would just hit them up in the coffee mess or in the gym and say, hey, man, how's it going? You know, and then they strike up an idle polite conversation and, uh, um, be like, oh, it's like, oh man, you know, it's going good. And I'm like, man, it, it hasn't been going good for me lately. I've been having some issues where I'm, I'm having a hard time controlling my temper and I'll drive home from work. I'm all frustrated from work and I'll get home. My kids are running around the house and they're kind of just playing and being kids. And then I just yell at them. I start yelling at them. I yell at my wife. I just, geez, Jace, these they're just being kids. Calm down. And so anyway, man, I, I've been seeing the psych and uh, it's been it's been helping me. And that approach, way better, much more success rate. Why? Because I'm not climbing up on a pedestal, pointing down at someone. I'm actually being vulnerable, yeah. which instills that I'm trusting the other person. And when that other person feels like I'm giving them trust and they want to trust me back. And so then, then late that set tees up the conversation where later on I can go back to them and say, Hey, bro, do me a favor as, as my friend, do one meeting with the psych. And that usually is enough to get them to go. Right. Yeah. It's impressive. That's awesome. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left here. I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about Echelon Front. Um, you know, this is a basically a, a leadership company, right? Like, I mean, you guys started this thing, and this is, um, you know, what it says on your website, echelonfront.com, practical experience-based solutions to complex problems. Sounds like a SEAL thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it 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 isn't. Jocko and, and Leif developed our whole leadership principles, and Jocko developed the laws of combat, Um, when he was running all the training for the West Coast SEAL teams and didn't realize that, hey, these apply everywhere. And what we tell people is every problem that you're having is a leadership problem. All of them. Every problem that you have is a leadership problem, and it comes back to you and you taking ownership of that problem and seeing what squared away stuff you can do to fix it. So what we do is – you know, we do leadership consulting where we either come and give a keynote or a workshop with a business or an organization. And then sometimes we'll do a longer engagement with them. We also do uh, interactive events where we have uh, one event that JP Janelle runs. It's really cool called uh, um, an FTX where people are put in like simulated combat scenarios that reinforce these uh, uh, leadership principles and then we also have uh, battlefield events where we go to like Gettysburg or Little Bighorn with a bunch of uh, corporate leaders or business leaders or firemen or police officers. And we talk about, hey, here's what happened at this battlefield. And here's the leadership decisions that were made. And here's how they worked out. And here's how they didn't. And here are the personalities involved. So it's a great study. And then we have our musters, which are like big two-day leadership events that are just awesome. So we're doing all kinds of awesome stuff. And it works. Every company that we work with, they do better when they're done working with us. And it it, it comes down to just helping people understand that all their problems, they need to look at how they can fix them. You know, the same thing I learned from my psych, that it's it's me. What is the biggest difference? And by the way, concur, I I agree with you wholeheartedly that I I believe 99% of all problems can be solved through leadership. Look at government. We have a lack of leaders in government. That's why we have the ton of problems that we have. Different discussion for a different time, clearly. But uh, I've been in both the civilian world and the military world. Uh, and, you know, after 20 plus years, and I'm sure you feel the same way after 30 years in the Navy, like we're sort of subject matter experts on leadership, right? Because it's what, what we've been challenged with our entire careers. But that said, what do you think the biggest differences are between military leaders and military leadership versus corporate civilian leaders in leadership? What what is the biggest gap? So in the military, you can get folks that are authoritarian and they can start to throw their rank around. Mm -hmm. 
and it's backed up by law, right? And in the corporate world, they don't, they can't do that. They, 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 you know, they, they can't give you like extra military instruction or a watch or something like that, you know, and by a watch, I mean like standing a post or, or whatever. Um, so there's a huge difference there. And in the military, just like in the corporate world, there's a bell curve. There are great leaders and there are terrible leaders. Yes. Um, but a hundred percent of your problems are leadership problems. hundred percent. Name one that isn't. Yeah. Name it. You could say, oh, the weather's wrong. Oh, we had bad weather today. Okay, well. You didn't plan for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Weather should have been in your plan. <laughs> There's, like, if you sit down and think of all the problems that you've got, there, it's a, it's, it is all leadership. Yeah, I mean, again, I, uh, I 100% know that leadership solves everything, right? If you get the right leader, mm-hmm. and, and like you said, we, we, I've seen good leaders, I've seen bad ones. I know good leaders in the military, I know bad leaders in the military, and the same in the civilian world. Um, I would just say, I, I think sometimes that there is a, uh, I, I think we do a better job despite the rank structure in the military. I think we do a better job at actually connecting with people and and motivating them. There's more interpersonal relationships in the military than there are in the civilian world. And I know people would think it would be the other way around, but at least for me, I spend time with my folks. I talk to my folks. You know, when I'm in my civilian job, I can do my job and go home and not give a rip about anybody. Uh, it's easy. It's easy to, to keep myself away from people. I, I, Me as a leader, one of my touchstones is just spend time with your folks, man. Talk to them. Find, yeah. Figure out how they're doing. And it's and because we're around each other so much in the military, I think it's a little bit easier. Well, you're you're right. I, I miss that that aspect of it because because we're doing hard things together. Mm-hmm. We're automatically tighter. When we go on deployment, everybody's on deployment. No one's getting out of it. So that, that does make, make things uh, a little bit tighter, you know? And, and so you would think that probably, probably f- folks in the fire service experience the same thing because they're doing hard things together and, 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 and law enforcement, all our first responders really, um, same, same kind of deal. I, I just don't, yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you that. I agree. I'll ask one more real quick. I just want you to be able to tell me about Mountain and Prairie because I know uh, you're involved with that organization as well. What's it about and sort of uh, so, why just start it? No, Mountain and Prairie is just a podcast mm-hmm. that uh, the guy runs out of Colorado. And it's just a bunch of different things, thinking about the great outdoors and uh, conservation and hunting and, and things like that. So I've been on it. My wife, Iris, has been on it. Uh we live in a real, as soon as I retired, we got out of California and we moved to a very, very rural Northeastern Washington location. I mean, um, we're almost on the Canadian border and it's the wide open spaces up here. And we, we, we've got like kind of a homesteading lifestyle and, uh, we really, really enjoy it. I mean, it's really therapeutic. When I look, I'm looking out the window right now and all the fir trees are covered with snow and it's absolutely gorgeous. And just having that kind of input into my mind gives me a piece that I can't get in the city. Looks like a Bob Ross painting, I bet, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, again, make sure you guys check out Echelon Front. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for your time. I, I know uh, it's very precious, so I certainly appreciate it. But an amazing 30-year-plus career. Uh, and just continue that craft of leadership, continue to send that message out there because it's so important. It, it, it's what's going to take whatever we're mess we're living in right now. And somehow somewhere down the road, hopefully for our children, you know, they'll have better leadership that, that'll help us rise above all this smut that we're in on a day to day basis and get us to a place where once again, we can, uh, we can enjoy the homestead lifestyle, if you will. Hey, yeah. And Mark, but one thing that it's like, Hey, everybody's a leader. Because you have to lead yourself every morning. So everybody's a leader and the obstacle is the way. All these things, all these friction points, all this COVID, all these mandates and all that stuff, those are just challenges. And build some space around that challenge and figure out how you're going to react to it. Are you going to react in a way that's positive or are you going to react in a way that's negative? The choice is yours. Get after it. Perfect words to end this thing on. Jason Gardner, thanks so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Awesome. Thank you.
You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.